Cool. So thanks for um, coming, Holden. Yeah. Uh, just to me. kind of warm us up, give us an overview of what OpenPhil has been up to since the last 12 months since our last chat and uh, what your plans are for the following year. Sure. So um, Open Philanthropy is a grant maker. That's our main activity. And uh, right now, I would say we're in kind of an intermediate stage in our development. So we're giving away uh, you know, a bit over $100 million a year. That's been true for the last couple of years. We do want to grow that number at some point. Um, but we have this, you know, this belief that what we should be doing right now is strengthening the organization, strengthening our intellectual frameworks, our approach, our operations, um, and just kind of getting used to operating at this scale, which is, which is big for a grant maker, um, before going bigger. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's kind of a several year transition period. And so what I would say is, uh, the last year, uh, in addition to grant making, we, you know, did a lot of work to strengthen our operations, and we did a lot of work to kind of get more clarity on what we call the cause prioritization problem. So that that would be, you know, how much money is eventually going to go into each of the different causes that we work in. How much should go into criminal justice reform? How much should go to support GiveWell's top charities, which we try to weigh against the other things? How much should go to AI risk, biosecurity, etc.? Um, so that's been a big focus of the last year or so, and. Um, Going forward, it's it's kind of the same. I mean, we're very focused on hiring right now. Uh, we just had a director of operations start, and we've been hiring pretty fast on the operations side. Um, and that is because we're trying to build a robust organization that is really ready to make a ton of grants and do it efficiently and do it with a good experience for the grantees. And then the other hiring we're doing is this push for research analysts. So these are going to be people who you know, sort of help us choose between causes, help us answer these sort of esoteric questions that uh, most foundations don't really try to analyze, like how much money should go to each cause, what causes should we work on, um, expect them to eventually become kind of core contributors to the organization. And so a major endeavor this year has been gearing up to, you know, to find the best, our, our best shot, our best guess at who we should be hiring for that. So it's really a capacity building hiring time and also a time when we're, you know, really intense about figuring out that question about how much money goes to each cause. Okay, fantastic. Um, and just to check, everyone knows you can ask questions on the Bizabo app and um, in a half an hour or so, we'll start um, uh, bringing these into, those into the mix as well. So, um, Okay, but one thing you mentioned was then this, something you've been working on is yeah, how do you divide the money across these very different cause areas and this question of kind of worldview diversification. So what kind of progress do you feel like you've made on that over the last year? Sure. So um, first, I just want to give a little bit of background on the question because it's, it's kind of a weird one, and it's one that often doesn't come up in a philanthropic setting. Um, we work in a bunch of very different causes. So like I said, we work on criminal justice reform. We work on farm animal welfare. We work on global health. How much money goes into each cause? Um, so one way that you might think to try to answer this is you might say, well, what are we trying to do? Um, and how much of it are we doing for every dollar that we spend? So you might say that we're trying to, let's say, um, prevent premature deaths. How many premature deaths are we preventing for every dollar we spend? Um, you might try to come up with a more inclusive kind of universal metric of, you know, of good accomplished. And I think there's different ways to do that. Um, you know, one way is to kind of say, to, to kind of value different things according to one scale. And so, you know, um, you could use a, a framework similar to the quality framework where you say, if you avert a blindness, that's like half as good as saving a life or something like that. Um, and so you could put them all into one scale and then you can say, you know, how many units of good, so to speak, are we accomplishing for each dollar we spend? And then you would just divide up the money so that you get the maximum overall. And I, I think what one might think when you do that is that, um, you, 
you know, you start putting money into your best cause, and at a certain point, uh, it's no longer your best cause because you're reaching diminishing returns. Like the more money you put in, the less you're getting out, and so now you put money into another cause, and that determines your allocation. And um, there's there's what I consider a problem with this approach. Not everyone would consider it a problem. Uh, what I consider it a problem is that we've run into two sort of mind-bending fundamental questions that seem like it's very hard to get away from. These questions are very hard to answer, and then they have a really huge impact on how we give. So one of them is, how do you value animals versus humans? For example, how do you value chickens versus humans? Um, and you know, on one hand, if you value, let's say to simplify, we're deciding between you know, give well top charities, which try to help humans uh, with global health interventions, bed nets, cash transfers, things like that, and, uh, and we're trying to decide, on the other hand, whether to fund these animal advocacy groups that try to push for better treatments of animals on factory farms. And, um, you know, without going too much into, into what the numbers look like, it kind of looks like if you, if you decide that you value a chicken's experience, like 1% as much as a human's, um, you kind of get this result back out that you should just only work on chickens. Like, just all the money should go into farm animal welfare. And on the other hand, let's say that you go from 1% to, you know, 0.001% or zero or something. You decide you, you don't value chickens um, as much as humans. And then you're going to get the result, of course, that you should just put all the money into humans. Um, and that is kind of, you know, it's, it's like you've got this one parameter, and, and you don't know what the number should be. And when you kind of move to one number, it says you should put all the money over here. And when you move to another mo number, it says you should put all the money over there. Um, the, you know, the even trickier version of this question is when we talk about preventing global catastrophic risks or existential risks. Um, when we talk about, you know, our work on things like AI risk, biosecurity, climate change, where the goal is not to help some specific set of persons or chickens, um, but rather to, you know, to hopefully do something that will be positive for all future generations. So, you know, prevent some catastrophic effect that could ripple through future generations. And then the question is, how many how many future generations are there? And when you, you know, if you prevent some kind of existential risk, did you just do the equivalent of preventing 7 billion premature deaths, which is the population, you know, about the population of the world? Or did you just do the equivalent of preventing like a trillion, 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 you know, uh, untimely deaths? And it's, it, it depends how many people there are in the future and you pick different numbers and it's, it's very hard to pick the right number and whichever number you pick, it just takes over the whole model. Um, and so that, that for us, we have uh, we have determined that there's a bunch of reasons we don't want to go all in on one cause. That's something we've written up on our blog. Um, I think you know among other things, if you go all in on one cause, you get all the idiosyncrasies of that cause. It could be very easy to miss a lot of good opportunities to do good if you change your mind later. It could um, become very hard to like pull in a lot of donors and be broadly appealing if your whole uh, work is premised on this one weird assumption and this one weird number that could have been something different. Um, and so we don't want to be all in on one cause. And so where we kind of came to at the end of last year is that we want to have these buckets and the different buckets of capital kind of use different assumptions. And so we might have one bucket of capital that says, you know, uh, preventing an existential risk is worth a trillion, trillion, trillion uh, premature deaths averted. And so, you know, we value every grant by how it affects the long run uh, trajectory of the world. And another bucket might say, no, we're just going to look for things that affect kind of people alive today or that have impact we can see in our lifetimes. And then you have another bucket that takes, you know, chickens very seriously and another one that doesn't. And then you, then you have to determine the size of those buckets. And so it's kind of this multiple stage process where you first say, you know, there's X dollars. How much is going to be in the 
what we call the animal-inclusive bucket versus the human-centric bucket, how much is going to be in the long-termist bucket versus the near-termist bucket. And then within those buckets, now you can use your metrics a little bit more normally and decide you know, how much is AI risk, how much is biosecurity, how much is climate change. Um, and then we're attacking the problem in kind of two different levels in parallel. So one of them is the abstract. So one of them is if I say just, all right, you have X dollars, how much do you want to put in the animal inclusive versus the human centric bucket. And you might kind of start with a start with an assumption of 50-50, you know, as a prior. And then say, well, I actually take this one bucket more seriously, so I'll put more in there, and you can have some other adjustments too. Um, and then we're also we've also started moving toward addressing this in a very concrete and tangible way too, where we just we we actually create a table that says uh, if we, you know, if, if for each for each set of dollars we could spend We'll get this many, you know, this many chickens helped, and this many humans helped, and this many uh, points of reduction in existential risk. And so, under different assumptions, it looks like excellent by this metric, okay by that metric, really bad by that metric. And then you can just look at the table and kind of understand the trade-offs you're making. And so, a lot of the work we're doing now, and a lot of the work that I think new hires will do, is filling out that table. And, and a lot of it is really guesswork, but to give us some rough sense of what. You know, sort of, if we can understand what we're buying with different approaches, then then hopefully we can make a more, you know, a more kind of reflective equilibrium decision. Mm-hmm. Okay, fantastic. And then as part of that, you've got to have this kind of answer to the question of your last dollar of funding. Um, uh, how, like, how good is that last dollar? And how do you think about that then, given this framework? Sure. So the, the last dollar question is, is very central to our work, and it's kind of one of the things that brought up this dilemma, uh, which is, Someone sets in, uh, sends in a, a proposal for a grant, and you know, really, we have to decide: do we want to make the grant or not? And in some ways, what the question really is is: is it better to make this grant, or is it better to save the money? And what that really means is: would this grant be better than the last dollar we're going to spend? Um, and so, you know, for a long time, we kind of had this last dollar concept that was based on Give Directly. Uh, Give Directly is a charity that gives out cash. So for every, you know, for every $100 you give, they try to get $90 to someone in, in an extremely low income, you know, sort of globally low income household. Um, and so, you know, what we said is if we're looking at a grant and it doesn't look as good as give directly, because we can, we can sort of give almost infinite money via give directly eventually, we think, um, then why make the grant? And if it's better, then maybe we should make it. But we've, we've definitely refined our thinking. We've definitely gotten further on that. And so, you know, one of the things I mentioned, give directly is kind of a, a near-termist, human-centric kind of charity. And the question becomes, you know, if you decide that instead of counting the good you're accomplishing, instead of counting people you're helping, you're counting kind of like points of reduction in global catastrophic risks, um, then what does your last dollar look like? And it probably doesn't look like give directly because there's probably better ways to accomplish that kind of long-termist goal. And so we spent a bunch of, a bunch of time over the last couple of months trying to answer that question. What is the give directly of long-termism? What is the thing you can just spend unlimited money on and does as well as you can for increasing the odds of a, of a bright future for the world. And so we tried a whole bunch of different things. Um, we looked at the different possibilities. And where we are right now is we have this idea of um, platform technology for rapid development of medical countermeasures. So the idea is you would invest heavily in research and development, and you would hope that what you get out uh, from a massive investment is the ability to more quickly develop like a vaccine or you know some kind of treatment uh, in case there's ever a disastrous pandemic. And, you know, then you can estimate kind of the risk of a pandemic over different time frames and how much this would help and how much you're going to speed it up. And our kind of estimate ended up being that we think we could probably, uh, 
probably spend like over $10 billion in present value terms on this kind of work. Um, and uh, I think we estimated it. This is, this is really kind of wild, and, it, and it's a wild guess, but we're, we're trying to start with broad contours of things and then, and then get more refined. Um, but we estimate something like the you know, low, low price of $245 trillion uh, per, per time that you prevent extinction. <laughs> um, so uh, $245 trillion per, per reduced extinction event um, actually comes out to a pretty good deal. That's, pretty good. that's, like, yeah. that's like total wealth of yeah. um, the world. So yeah, times a like, few. Yeah. Yeah. Or total wealth. Yeah, I mean, total it's wealth like total is, GDP times a few. Yeah, yeah, yeah which is it's about yeah. $240 trillion is total wealth. So that's like yeah. weirdly balanced. Actually. Yeah, exactly. Um, but there's all um, this future wealth to it, so, so yeah. it's actually a good deal. And, and the funny thing is that it... Um, <laughs> The funny thing is that it, if, you just, if you just count people who are alive today and you look at the cost per death averted kind of probabilistically and in expected terms, it's actually pretty good. It's kind of in the same ballpark as top charities mm-hmm. for GiveWell. Now, um, very questionable because GiveWell's cost effectiveness estimates are quite rigorous and well-researched, and this is not. Um, and so, <laughs> you know, you don't want to go too far with that, and you don't want to say these numbers are the same. But kind of the preliminary look is... You know, we think we can probably do better than this with most of our, you know, yeah, most yeah. of our spending. And so this is interesting to see that that last dollar looks, you know, like, like not a bad deal. And now we can compare any other grants we're making that have this long-term feature of humanity. We can say, are they better or worse than this medical countermeasure platform tech? Because we could spend as much money as we want on that. Um, so, and then, and then, you know, we don't have a last dollar estimate yet for animal welfare. Um, we do have a view that, you know, the current work is extremely cost effective. Um, it's kind of in the, you know, it's, it's under, under a dollar per like animal, you know, per animal's life significantly improved in a way that's kind of similar to a death averted. Um, but it's, it's more of a reducing suffering thing a lot of the time. And we do think we could expand the budget a lot before mm-hmm. we saw diminishing returns there. So that's, that's a number we're kind of working with until we get a better last dollar. Okay, terrific. And then of all these kind of different cause areas, are there some that you're just more personally excited about than others? Yeah. Um, yeah, how does that affect it? Like, sure. I mean, I, my, my, I get different, differently excited about different causes on different days, and I'm, I'm super excited about everything we're doing because it was all picked very carefully to, you know, to be our best bet for doing the most good. And as soon as it looks bad, we tend to close it down. So, um, you know, I, I generally am excited about everything. There's different pros and cons to the different work. Um, the farm animal work is really exciting because we're seeing tangible wins. And I think the criminal justice work also looks that way. It's, it's just really great to be, you know, starting to see, hey, we made a grant and something happened and it helped someone and it, and it led to someone having a better life. Um, and so a lot of times that, that does feel like the most exciting. Um, and on the other hand, you know, I, I have over the last couple of years just gotten more and more excited about the long-termist work for kind of a different reason, um, which is that I've, you know, I've, I've started to really believe we could be living at sort of a unique, a uniquely high leverage moment in history. Um, so, you know, I mean, just, just to start off, just to set the stage, uh, I think people kind of tend to walk around thinking like, well, the, the world economy, this is certainly how I walk around, the world economy grows at around 2% a year um, in real terms, maybe 1% to 3%, and that's how things are, and that's how things have ever, have ever been and have been for a long time and will be for a long time. Um, and, you know, I think that's basically like a weird way of thinking about things because I think that rate of growth is, is super weird and super historically anomalous. Um, it's been like 200 or 300 years that we've had that level of growth that's like 10 generations or something. It's a tiny, tiny fraction of human history. Before that, we had much slower growth. And then, and then when we look to the future, um, you know, for, for many, many reasons that I'm not going to get into now, we believe there are advanced technologies such as, you know, highly capable AI where you could, you could either see that growth rate 
skyrocket and then and then maybe kind of flatten out as we get radically better at doing science and developing new technologies. Um, or you could see a global catastrophe. And I think, again, you know, it, it's probably possible today, it could be possible to, uh, to wipe ourselves out completely with nuclear weapons. Um, in the future, there may be other ways of doing it, like climate change and, um, and, and new kinds of pandemics with synthetic biology. Uh, until, you know, I mean, as of 100 years ago, there was, there was basically almost no reasonably likely way for, for humanity to go extinct. And so there's a lot of things that look special about this time that we live in. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of the, the highest upside, the highest downside, maybe that's ever been seen before. Um, one way to think about it is you could think that the, you know, civilization or humanity, more humanity has been around for hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of years, depending how you count it, um, could be around for billions of years from now, but we might be in the middle of like the most important hundred years. Um, and when I think about it that way, then I think, boy, someone should really be keeping their eye on this. <laughs> and, and, um, and the other thing is that it, to a large degree, people aren't. I mean, yep. you know, even uh, even climate change, which is better known than a lot of the other risks. I mean, sufficient action is not being taken. Governments are not making it a priority to the extent that that I think they reasonably should. Um, and so, as someone who has the freedom to spend how money money how we want and the ability to think about these things and act on them without having to worry about a profit motive or you know or, or accountability to kind of near term outcomes, um, we're in a really special position to do something. And I think that's uh, it's exciting. It's also scary. So, <laughs> cool. And so then, over the last year, what sort of yeah are there particular grants that you think people in the audience might not know as much about that um, you are particularly excited about? You think are going to be particularly good? Important? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of grants I'm excited about. I'm guessing people know about things like our OpenAI grant, uh, which I'm excited about, and our uh, many grants to support uh, animal welfare, corporate campaigning in the U.S., abroad, India, Europe, uh, Latin America, etc. I'll skip over those. I'll name some others people might not have heard of. Uh, very excited about the AI Fellows program. So we recently announced a set of uh, early career AI scientists who uh, we, you know, we are giving fellowships to. It was a very competitive process. Uh, these scientists are really, really exceptional. They're some of the best, you know, really some of the best AI researchers flat out. Uh, for their career stage. And then they're also, you know, they're interested in AI safety. They're interested in kind of not just making AI more powerful, but in making it something that's going to have better outcomes, um, behave better, have fewer bugs, et cetera, uh, solving the alignment problem, things like that. And, um, you know, we've, we found a great combination of just like really excellent technical abilities and then kind of a, a seriousness and an open-mindedness to some of the more, uh, you know, the less mainstream parts of AI that we think are the most important, like, like the alignment problem. And so, uh, our goal here is to kind of have these fellows to help them learn from, uh, from, from the AI safety community and get up to speed and become some of the best AI safety researchers out there. And also to make it more common knowledge in AI that this is, this is a good career move to work on AI safety. And I think it's exciting as a foundation to be engaging in field building and trying to make it true more than it was before, that working on AI safety is a good career move. So I'm excited about that. Um, I'm excited about the, uh, you know, we're working, our, our science team is working on a kind of universal antiviral drug. So I uh, believe that, that a lot of viruses, like maybe all of them, uh, rely on these particular proteins in your body um, to replicate themselves and to have their effects. And so if you can inhibit those proteins, and we already have some drugs that do it, uh, and that are that are kind of safe uh, because they're they're already being used for cancer treatment things like that. Um, if you can inhibit those drugs, you might have a, a drug that is 
not something you'd want to take every time you got a virus, but might work on every virus, which could make it a really excellent thing to have if some unexpectedly terrible pandemic comes and, and to stockpile. So that's, uh, that's super cool. Um, I think in general, uh, you know, I, I'm often excited when I just see that we're doing something that is, you know, we have a couple grants that are just all about speed. So there's a couple of science grants where just like there's a technology that looks great. Everyone's kind of excited about it. There's not that much to argue about. Um, gene drives to potentially eradicate malaria. There's a, an experimental treatment for sepsis that could save a lot of lives. Um, and our, you know, we're just, uh, we're just speeding them up. So we just, you know, I kind of feel proud as an organization and of our, of our operations team and all that, that we're, we're sometimes able to make a grant where we're like, yeah, everyone knows this is good, but we're the fastest. Yeah. You know, we can, we can, we can get the money out now and we can make this happen sooner and happening sooner saves enough lives or whatever that it's a good deal. So those are, those are some of the things I'm excited about. Cool. I mean, that's a lot of exciting stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Switching gear a bit and talking about, um, yeah, the EA community a little bit. What do you wish kind of was happening in the EA community that currently isn't, you think? That might be projects, organizations, career paths, lines of intellectual inquiry, and so on. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, you know, I'm, I think the EA community is, is, uh, an exciting, you know, an exciting thing and, uh, a great source of a lot of, a lot of people have really interesting ideas and make us think and have affected our thinking a lot and our cause prioritization a lot. Um, you know, I do, I think right now it's a community that is very heavy on sort of people who are philosopher types and economist types and computer programmer types. Um, and all, all those somewhat describe me. And so, you know, um, and, and I think we have a lot of those. And I think, uh, those, those folks do a lot of good. Um, but I would like to see a broader variety of just different types of people in the community. Um, because I think there are, you know, there are people who are more intuitive thinkers who wouldn't wouldn't want to sit around at a party kind of debating whether, you know, whether the parameter for the moral weight of chickens is 1% or 0.01% and what, you know, what anthropics might have to do with that. Um, you know, <laughs> might not be interested in that, but they're, but they're still, they still have serious potential as effective altruists because they're able to say, you know, I would like to help people and I would like to do it as well as I can. And so they might, you know, might be able to say things like, boy, there's an issue in the world. Um, Maybe it's, you know, maybe it's animal welfare, maybe it's AI, maybe it's something else that it's just, it's so important and, and no one's working on it. And I think there's something I can do about it. So I want to work on that. And that's, you know, you don't, you don't need to engage in hours of philosophy to get there. And I think a lot of people who are more intuitive thinkers who may be less interested in that stuff, um, have a lot to offer us as a community and can accomplish a lot of things that the current, you know, that the philosopher, programmer, economist type is not always as strong in, um, and so, you know, that, that is something I would, I would love to see, you know, I, I would love to see it if the, if the effective altruism community could find a way to just get a broader variety of people and, and be a little bit, you know, yeah, more, more like that. Cool. Terrific. And then in your own life, you know, you're managing a lot of money. There's a lot at stake. Um, how, you know, how do you keep yourself sane? Like, does this cause you to overwork? Do you balance, like, how do you balance working with time off? Sure. I mean, I think we're working on a lot of exciting stuff and I, I certainly know people who when they're working on exciting stuff, they tend to just like work all the time and they tend to burn yeah. out. Um, and you know, I, I've been like really pretty intense about not doing that. Um, yeah. I definitely have been working on, you know, founded, co-founded GiveWell like 11 years ago and just been working continuously since then. GiveWell, open philanthropy. So, you know, maybe at the beginning it felt like I was sprinting, but right now it really, really feels like a marathon. Um, I try to treat it that way. Um, so, you know, I, I'm just very attentive to if I start feeling a lack of motivation, I just take a break. I do a lot of really stupid things with my time that put me in a better mood. Um, I don't feel bad about it. Um, name, and, name some stupid things. Go on. Oh, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you, 
just like going to weird conferences where I don't like know anyone or have anyone anything to contribute and um, <laughs> talk to everyone there. You know, um, video games. Like my my wife and I like to just like have stuffed animals with very bizarre personalities and act out. So so now you know some things. Um, so so I mean I, I and I and I don't I don't feel bad about it. And 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 something that I've done actually for a long time now. I think like starting around two years into GiveWell is that I um, actually have tracked my kind of focused hours, my meaningful hours. And at a certain point, I just took an average over like the last six months. And I was like, that's my target. That's the average. Mm -hmm. When I hit the average, I'm done for the week. Um, unless it's a special week, unless I really need to work more that week. Um, and you know what that does is it, it is sustainable. Because um, I think going in more than the average would not be sustainable. And two, it just puts me in a mindset where I know how many hours I have, and I have to make the most of them. And I think, you know, there are people who say, if I could just work hard enough, I'll get everything done. And I, I, I don't think that works for me. I think it, it is often a bad idea. Um, one way that I think about it is, you know, the most you can increase your output from working harder is often around like 25%. Uh, if you want to increase your output by 5x, by 10x, you need to get better at skipping things, deciding what not to do, deciding what shortcuts to take, and also you need to get good at hiring, managing, deciding who should be doing what, deciding it shouldn't be you doing a lot of things. Um, you know, I, I feel like my, my productivity has gone up by, by a very large amount, and there's mm -hmm. a lot of variance. Like, when I make bad decisions, I might get a tenth as much done in, mm -hmm. in a month, but um, it's not by working more hours. And so that's, uh, you know, that is definitely something that, that I do that, you know, even, even though I think we're doing a lot of exciting stuff, I, I do uh, take it easy in that sense. Cool. Um, and so then, over the last decade, what do you think are some of the biggest mistakes you've made or things you wish you'd done differently? Yeah, uh, I got lots of fun mistakes. Um, and uh, you said last decade, so that rules out a lot of, uh, a lot of fun stuff. Um, <laughs> had some notes on this, because it's, it's hard to keep track of all my mistakes. <laughs> um, so I think, uh, hang on, just give me a sec. I think I'm looking at the wrong thing. Um, so I, I, I will say a, a couple things. Um, one thing is I think, I think early on, uh, and, and still kind of all the time, I think without meaning to, a lot of times we've communicated in kind of a careless way. And I think especially early on, our kind of view was uh, more attention is better. We really need to get people paying attention to us. Um, and the problem is that a lot of the things we said, kind of they never go away. The internet never forgets. Um, and I think also people who may have you know, been turned off by our early communications, like that, that that's you never get the second chance to make that first impression. Um, and you know, when I look back at it, I think was it really that important to get that much attention? And no, it wasn't. I think over the long run, um, if we had just kind of been quiet and said something when we really had something to say and said it carefully, I don't know that anything really would have gone that differently. Maybe it just would have gone better. Um, you know, we've we've really succeeded to the extent we've succeeded on just having good research that we can explain, um, and then people resonate with it. So I, I don't I don't know that we really had to do it that way. Um, you know, I think another uh, another mistake that I that I look back on, I think I was too actually too slow to get excited about the effect of altruism community. So, you know, when we were starting off, um, I knew that we were working on something that most people didn't seem to care about. I knew that we were asking the question, how do we do the most good that we can with a certain amount of resources? And I kind of knew that there were other people asking a similar question, but we were speaking very different languages from each other. Um, and so it was hard for me to really see see that those people were kind of asking the same question I was asking. And so I think a lot a lot of what we did is we were a bit, I wouldn't say totally dismissive, like we talked to the proto-effective altruists and mm -hmm. everything before it was called effective altruism. Um, but I think it didn't really hit me. Like, boy, if, if there's important insights about my work, 
that I'm missing because I don't have enough people you know, with mm -hmm. different perspectives, um, the most likely to f way to find those insights is to find people who have the same goal and are different from me. And the fact they speak a different language from me and they kind of a lot of their stuff sounds loopy, I mean, that's just good. That means that, um, that, means that there's, there's going to be at least some, uh, some uh, degree of different perspectives here. So you know, I think we've profited a lot from engaging with the EA community. We've learned a lot and we could have done it earlier. So I think that's a mistake. Um, and then the final thing, like, here's a mistake that I, like, will not go into details on, um, and it's more like a class of mistakes, but mm -hmm. in general, I feel like, uh, the decisions these days that I'm most nervous about are hiring, recruiting, uh, because most of the things we do at OpenFill, we've, like, figured out how to do them in kind of an incremental way. You do something, you see how it goes, you do something, you see how it goes, and nothing's ever that disastrous or that epic. Um, and when you're recruiting, it's just like someone's saying, should I leave my job or not? And you have to say yes or no. Um, and it's just, it's such an incredibly high leverage decision that it's, it's become clear to me that when we, when we do it wrong, it's such a huge problem and such a huge cost to us. And we do it right. It just makes, it makes it, you know, it makes everything we do. And, and basically, you know, everything we've been able to do is just because of the, of the, of the people that we have. So, um, those are the make or break decisions and we often have to make them in a week and we have to make them on limited information. So sometimes we get them right, sometimes we get them wrong. I think there's a lot of ones we've gotten wrong that I don't know about. Um, mm -hmm. And so a lot of the biggest mistakes have to be in that category. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, and so then, yeah, what kind of headline career advice would you give to the A's in the audience who are currently kind of figuring out what they ought to do? Like, how do you think about that question in general? Yeah, sure. I mean, I... Um, Obviously, I kind of only in some sense have one, one career to look at, although we do, we also, since we interact with a lot of grantees, we also do kind of notice, you know, who's having a big impact according to us and what's been their trajectory. Um, and, you know, one, one thing that I do kind of think when, whenever I talk to people about this topic, I like get the sense that effective altruists, especially early in their career, are often kind of impatient, uh, impatient for impact relative to what they should be. So, you know, I think a lot of the people I know who seem to be in the best position to do something big. It's like they did something for five years, 10 years, 20 years. Sometimes the thing was kind of random, but they picked up skills, they picked up connections, um, they built, they picked up expertise. And I think a lot of the, you know, a lot of the big wins we've seen, both stuff we funded and stuff we haven't, um, you know, it, it looks less like someone came out of college and had impact every year and then it added up to something good. And it looks more like someone might have, might have just been working on themselves in their career for 20 years, and then they had like one really good year, mm -hmm. and that's just everything. And it's, you know, that, that makes your career in terms of your impact. And so, you know, I, I do think a lot of early career effective altruists, like I, I kind of think if they just switched and made the opposite mistake, which I think would also be a mistake, mm -hmm. um, just forget about impact and just say, you know, what can I be good at? How can I grow? How can I become the person I want to be? Um, I think that like probably wouldn't be worse and that might be better. And I think the ideal is some kind of balance. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that that would be, you know, a high level thing that I end up I, I do end up giving that advice a lot. I don't know if it's right or not, but it's, it's definitely something that I say a lot. Okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, so a couple of people were asked in, interested in a small question of just, what is your average number of hours per week then? I think you can say yeah. no comment if you don't. Uh... Yeah, um, I've, I've actually, so it, for focused hours, it, for the, the time I was doing it, it was like 40. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, hours on the clock would be more than that. Yeah. Um, and then... Uh, recently I've actually like stopped counting them up because now I'm in meetings all the time. And one, one of the things that I found is like your hours are way, my hours are way higher when I like have a ton of meetings. And if I'm sitting there trying to write a blog post, they're way lower. So, yeah, yeah. um, it doesn't, yeah, it's, 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 uh, it doesn't seem as worth tracking as it used to, but there's your answer. Yeah. 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 
I mean, I think getting into the mindset like different hours can be like a hundred times more valuable. Yeah. Like Frank Ramsey was one of the like most important thinkers early twentieth century and but died at twenty six, which is why no one knows about him. He just worked four hours a day. Yeah. <laughs> he made like amazing breakthroughs in like philosophy, decision theory, economics, maths. It's like yeah, insane. That's that's incredible. Um, so another thing a couple of people were interested in was uh, Open Phil's attitude to political funding. So firstly, just whether you have a policy um, with respect to like funding organizations that do political lobbying. And then secondly, like in particular, you know, funding particular candidates rather than other candidates who um, may increase or decrease existential risks. Yep. Um, yeah, I mean, there's just uh, open fill. There's, there's no real reason in principle that we can't do that. Um, and so, mm-hmm. you know, we kind of treat political giving or, you know, or, or policy-oriented giving the same as anything else, um, which is we kind of say, hey, you know, if we work on this, what are the odds that our funding contributes to something good happening in the world? And what are, you know, what is the value of that? And what is the, uh, if, if you kind of multiply out the probabilities in a sense, um, how good does that make the work look? And how does that compare to our last dollar? And how does that compare to our other work? And if it looks good enough and there aren't other concerns, we'll do it. Um, I don't want to say, I mean, we do, a, most of our grants, we're not actually calculating these figures, but we're kind of trying to do something that approximates them. So, for, for example, we work on causes that are important, neglected, and tractable, um, and we tend to rate things on importance, neglectedness, and tractability because we think those things are predictive and, and correlative um, with the kind of total good accomplished per dollar. So a lot of times you can't, you can't really get a good estimate of how much good you're doing per dollar, but you can kind of use that idea to guide yourself and to motivate yourself. And so, you know, the answer on politics is that. I think in some ways in politics there's an elevated risk. You should have an elevated risk that you're just wrong. Um, and you should remember that when you're, when you're doing things that you think are good. And so, you know, if, if you have, if it, if it looks like giving to bed nets to prevent malaria helps people a certain amount and giving to, you know, this very controversial issue that you're sure you're right about helps people a certain amount. I mean, and they're the same, probably the bed nets are better. Um, mm-hmm. because you, you, you're probably got some bias toward what you want to believe in politics. And that said, I don't think that, um, I don't think things are necessarily balanced. Like I think in, in, on political issues, people have a lot of reasons for holding the political views they do other than this is what's best for the world as a whole. And so when our goal is best for the world as a whole, it's not always that complicated to figure out which side is the side to go in on. Mm-hmm. It's not always impossible to see that. Um, so yeah, I mean, we, we can and do fun things that are aimed at changing policy. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, you know, in some cases, we've recommended contributions that, you know, that are trying to change those kind of outcomes. Okay, fantastic. Yeah. Um, so then another thing a couple of people are interested in is uh, how, what open fills your plans are for trying to influence other major foundations, other philanthropists. Um, what are your kind of aims and plans there? Yeah, so um, one, of the, you know, one of the cool things about open fill is that we, we are trying to do in our work in a way where we find out kind of how to help the most people with the least money or how to do the most good with the least money uh, or per dollar. And, you know, then we recommend that to currently our main funders are Carrie and Dustin. Um, but there's no reason that recommendation would be different for another person. So, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of times if, if, if there were a Will McCaskill Foundation, maybe it would be about what Will wants and its recommendations would not be interesting to other people. Actually, I know your foundation would not have that <laughs> issue, but, um, you know, that, that, is, that is the more normal way to be. And, and um, we definitely have aspirations that we think the work we're doing, the research, the lessons are applicable to other philanthropists. And so, you know, down the line, I would love it to be the case that 
we see way more good things to do with money than we have, you know, than Carrie and Dustin have money. Um, and so we're going out and pitching other people on it and trying to raise far more than Carrie and Dustin could give. So that's definitely where we're trying to go. Um, that's not what we're focused on right now because we're still below the giving level we would need just to accomplish the giving goals of Carrie and Dustin. Um, and so, you know, we're focused on that and we're focused on just also having a better organization, mm-hmm. more of a track record, stronger intellectual framework, just better, you know, more, something more solid to point to and say, here, here is our reason that this is a good way to do philanthropy. So we, we make early moves now. You know, we talk to people who are philanthropists, who will be philanthropists, but um, it's not our big focus now, but I think in a few years it could be. Okay. Um, and then, yeah, so you emphasize a lot. You kind of got criminal justice reform, existential risks with bio and AI. Animal welfare, global health. Is there like another cause that you think you'll like branch out into over the next kind of couple of years? And if so, what might that be? What some potential candidates? Sure. I mean, um, a lot. I mean, I do see a lot of the next few years is trying to stay focused when it comes mm-hmm. to our grant making. Um, but also a lot of you know, and 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 as we're doing that to figure out more clarity around you know again this question of long termism versus near termism and you know how much money is going to each and I think that will affect in the future how we want to. Uh, look for new causes. So I think we will look for new causes in the future. It's not our biggest focus in the immediate term. Um, but one thing we do do is we, a lot of times we, we will pick a cause based on partly on who we can hire for it. Mm-hmm. And we're, you know, we're a very big believers in a people-centric approach to giving. Uh, we believe that a lot of times if you, you know, support someone who's really good, it makes an enormous difference. Um, even if like, you know, maybe, maybe the cause is 10% worse, but the, the, the person is way more promising. So, you know, we originally had a bunch of policy causes we were interested in hiring for, mm-hmm. and criminal justice became a major cause for us, and the other ones didn't, because we found uh, someone who we were excited to lead our criminal justice reform work, that's mm-hmm. Chloe Coburn, and we didn't for some of the other ones. Um, but, you know, I would say uh, one cause we may may get more involved in in the future, and I, ca- I kind of hope we do, is macroeconomic stabilization policy. Mm-hmm. Not the world's best-known cause. Um, but it's, uh, you know, the, the idea is that the, some of the most important decisions in the world are made at the Federal Reserve, which is trying to balance the risks of inflation and unemployment. And we've come to the view that there's kind of an institutional bias um, in a particular direction, kind of more, more inflation aversion than is consistent with kind of a, you know, a, a best, most good for everyone kind of attitude. And we think some of that reflects the politics around it and, and the kind of pressures they come under. Um, and so we've been interested in that cause for a while. I think it's, um, there's this, this not very well known, you know, institution, not very well understood. It makes these decisions that are kind of esoteric. It's not a big political issue. Um, but it may have a bigger impact on the world economy, um, and on the working class than, you know, basically anything else the government is doing. Mm-hmm. Maybe anything else that anyone is doing. Um, so I would love to get more involved in that cause, but I think to do it really well, we would need someone who's, you know, all the way in. I mean, we, mm-hmm. we would need someone who's just obsessed with that issue because it's very complex. Yeah. And would that be, do you feel like that's kind of justified on the near-termist human-centric view, or do you think it's got potentially very long-run impacts too? Yeah, I think that one's kind of a, kind of a twofer. Um, I haven't totally, you know, figured out. We haven't tried to do the calculations yeah, yeah. on both axes, but um, certainly, I mean, it seems, it seems like broad-based growth and... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, lower unemployment, I think there's a lot of reasons to think that might lead to better societal outcomes, just mm-hmm. like better, you know, better broad-based values, which are then reflected in the kinds of uh, policies we enact and the kinds of people we elect. Um, and, you know, I, I do think that, uh, I do think that if things, if, 
if the economy is growing, especially if that growth is benefiting everyone across the economy, mm -hmm. um, if labor markets are tighter, if workers have better bargaining power, better lives, um, better prospects in the future, I do think that that is a global catastrophic risk reducer in some way. Yeah, I haven't, okay. haven't totally decided, you know, how does the magnitude of that compare to everything else? But I think uh, if we had the opportunity to go bigger in that cause, we would be thinking harder about it. Okay, so I think. And then with the, okay, so current distribution across causes, um, is it the case that you think something could happen or you could learn something or maybe just ethically reflect or something such that you'd say, okay, actually, we're just going to go all in on one cause? Like, is that conceivable or are you going to stay fixed? Sure. Um, I think it's conceivable we could go all in, but not soon. Mm -hmm. um, so I think as long as we think of ourselves as kind of a, you know, an early stage organization, you know, one of the big reasons to not go all in is kind of option value. Mm -hmm. And this way we get to learn about a lot of different kinds of giving. Uh, we're building capacity for a lot of things. And so, you know, I, I want to have that option to change my mind later. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, there's a bunch of, there's a bunch of advantages to being spread out across different causes. Um, but one of the big ones, it's like, yeah, maybe, maybe in 30 years we'll just be like, well, we've been at this forever and we're not going to change our minds. Yeah. And now we're going all in. Um, and that's something I can imagine, but I can't, can't really imagine it happening soon. Yeah, okay, it's the thing. Um, and then another thing a couple of people were interested in is like the relationship now for or what attitude should like a small individual donor kind of have. So a couple of thoughts. One is like, well, can they donate to Open Phil mm -hmm. um, or Good Ventures? Um, another is just, well, what's the point of me donating? There's this you know, huge foundation that's, you know, I think is like really good. So I'd be interested in, yeah, if you've sure. done that. Yeah, so individual donors um, cannot donate to OpenFill at the moment. We just haven't set that up. We haven't set up the customer service and all that stuff and processing that we would need. Um, so we're we're not taking donations. Um, there are the you know effective altruist funds. I think is what they're called mm -hmm. at CEA. Um, so some of our staff uh, manage donor advised funds that are that are not OpenFill that are outside OpenFill. But you know you can give to an animal welfare fund that is run by. Lewis, who's our farm animal welfare program officer, and uh, he will, you know, he will kind of look at what was what was he not able to fund that he wished he could have funded with open fill funds, and he'll use your funds on it. Um, so that is an option for individual donors. Um, but yeah, I think there's I think there's definitely donating can definitely do a lot of good despite our mm -hmm. existence. I mean, we we certainly yes we are the the capital we're working with is a lot compared to any individual but it's not a lot compared to the size of the need in the world and the amount of good that we can accomplish so um you know certainly we we do not believe given our priorities given the you know weight that we're putting on long termism versus near termism etc um we are now pretty confident that we just do not have enough available um to fund the give all top charities to their capacity and and not just give directly but some of the some of the ones that are really quite um you know, according to our analyses, are, are an even better deal than give directly for, you know, paying for the buck. So, um, you know, bed nets to prevent malaria and uh, seasonal uh, chemo prevention treatment also to prevent malaria, deworming, um, some other cool programs, you know, that is, I mean, you can donate there and, and you will get kind of an amazing deal in terms of helping people for a little money. Um, I know some people don't feel satisfied with that. They think they can do better with long-termism or with an animal-centric view. I think if you're animal-centric, I mean, we are also currently uh, have some limits on the budget for animal welfare, and so um, you know you can you can give to that effective altruist fund, or you can look at animal charity evaluators and their recommendations, yeah. or just give to farm animal groups you believe in. Um, long termism right now is is the one where it's kind of you know it's it's the least obvious what someone should do mm -hmm. uh, if they're trying to reduce global catastrophic risks and 
you know, but I think there's still things to do. So, you know, among, among the things going on, we don't, we're, we're currently very hesitant to be more than 50% of any organization's budget unless we feel just incredibly, like, incredibly well positioned to be their only point of accountability. Yeah. So, you know, there are organizations where we say we understand exactly what's going on here and we're fine to be the only decision maker on how this org is doing. Um, and other orgs, we just don't want them to be that dependent on us. Yeah. So there are orgs, you know, working on, on existential risk reduction, global catastrophic risk reduction, you know, most of them, and, and effective altruist community building, most of them we just won't go over 50%. And so they need, in some sense, to match our money with, with money from others. Um, so, you know, I would say generally, no matter what you're into, I mean, there's definitely something good you can do with your money. So, I, yeah, I still think donating is good. Cool. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, so you talked a bit in terms of your grants about technical AI safety that you've been funding. Uh, one person was asking about, well, what about AI strategy? Whether you're interested in funding that, whether you've done that in the past, maybe explain what that means as well. Sure. So AI strategy is a huge interest of ours. So one, one way of putting it is that when we think about potential risks from very advanced AI, um, we kind of think of two problems that, that interact with each other and kind of make each other potentially worse. I mean, it's very hard to see the future, but these are, these are things that are worth thinking about because of how big a deal they would be. Um, so one of them is the value alignment problem, and that's this idea that it may be very hard to build something that's sort of, you know, in some sense much smarter than anyone who built it and much better at, at thinking in every way and much better at optimizing and still have that thing sort of behave itself, so to speak. And so it, it may, be, may be very hard to get it to do what its creators sort of intended um, and do it sort of smarter than them, but not too different from them. And so that, that's the value alignment problem. And that's, most people consider it mostly a technical problem. So you're, you know, a lot of the research that's going on is how can we build AI systems that, you know, can kind of work with vague goals, the kind of goals that humans are probably going to be capable of giving to AI systems. So how can how can they work with vague, poorly defined goals and still kind of figure them out in a way that's in line with the original human intentions? Um, also, how can we build AI systems that are robust? So AI systems that, you know, if they trained in one environment and then the environment changes, they don't totally break. They kind of realize they're dealing with something new. The world has changed and, and now they don't totally do crazy things. Um, so that's the alignment problem, that's technical research. And then you know, there's this other side we think about the deployment problem, which is what if what if you have an extremely powerful general purpose technology um, that you know could lead to a really large concentration of power? And the question is sort of who? I mean, is it a government? Is it a company? Is it a person who kind of has the the, the moral right to to launch such a thing and to say, you know, hey, I have this very powerful thing and I'm going to use it to change the world in some way. Um, who kind of has the right to do that and, and what kind of outcomes can we expect uh, based on if different groups do it? And one of the things that we're worried about um, is that you might have a world where, you know, let's say two different countries are both trying to be the first to kind of develop a very powerful AI because if, if they can, they believe it will help their power, their standing in the world. And because they're in this race and because they're competitive with each other, they're cutting corners and they're, they're launching as fast as they can and so they're not very careful about this other issue I mentioned. And so they kind of release a carelessly designed AI and then the AI ends up unaligned and it ends up behaving in crazy ways and it has bugs and, and something that's very intelligent and very powerful and has bugs could be like very, very bad. Um, and so AI strategy in, in my you know, take is, is kind of working on that deployment problem, reducing the odds that there's going to be this kind of arms race or whatever, um, you know, increasing the odds that there's this kind of deliberate, wise, 
uh, decision about like what is powerful AI going to be used for and who's going to make that decision. And I think there's a lot of really interesting questions there. We're super interested in it. Um, yeah, I mean, we've definitely made grants in that area. We've supported uh, Future of Humanity Institute to do work on that. Uh, we're currently investigating, you know, a, a couple of other grants there. We've uh, put out a job posting for just, you know, someone who wanted to think about AI strategy all day and wanted to do it, you know, didn't, didn't have another place to go. But if we thought they were really good, um, we could, you know, we could sort of fund them ourselves. And that's sitting on our website. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and then also, I think um, our support of open AI, I mean, that's kind of a little bit of both. And so when we support mm-hmm. OpenAI, we're kind of trying to encourage OpenAI as an organization to do a lot of technical safety research, but also to be thinking, hey, we're a company that might be on the lead of AI. Like, what are we going to do if we're there? Who are we going to loop in? What We're going to be in conversations about how this thing should be used. What's our position going to be? Mm-hmm. Um, and who should use it? And so, you know, we've really encouraged them to build out a team of people who can be thinking about that question all the time. Um, and they and they are working on that, and so you know this is this is a major interest of ours. Yeah, terrific. And so you mentioned, yeah, one of the key ways in which there could be a worry is if there's a arms race. Um, perhaps you know, perhaps literally, it's kind of wartime or something. Yeah. Would you be interested? And how do you think about you know trying to make grants to reduce the chance of some sort of great power war? Yeah, I mean, I think it would be really good to have a lower odds of a great power <laughs> war, just flat out. Um, you know, maybe maybe some of the possibility for advanced technologies makes it even more good to reduce the mm-hmm. odds of a great power war. And um, that's an area that we have not spent much time on. I know there is a reasonable amount of foundation interest in what looks like, you know, the peace area. Mm-hmm. And so it's not immediately neglected at first glance. That said, a lot of things that look like they're getting attention at first glance, you kind of refine your model a little bit, you decide what the most promising angle on it is, and you may find that there's something neglected. Um, so I think it's something I'd love to look into at some point, and it might be an example of a, you know, of a really awesome cause that we just, we haven't had the capacity to look into, and if yeah, someone yeah. else saw something great to do, they should, they should definitely not wait for us. Okay, terrific. And then another cause that some people were asking about was um, uh, suffering of animals in the wild, whether you might be interested in making grants to um, improve that issue. Sure. Um, wild animal welfare, I mean, I think there, there's definitely... Uh, just off the bat kind of questions about is there anything you could do to improve wild animal welfare that wouldn't kind of cause a lot of other problems and, and you know, wouldn't, wouldn't perhaps uh, pose these problems that come from this hubris of, you know, there's these very complex ecosystems. We didn't create them. We don't understand them. We're intervening in them. So, and then another, another problem with working on wild animal welfare is, uh, you know, we just haven't seen a lot of shovel-ready stuff. And so, you know, something I will say is there's, there's probably a lot going on uh, where human activity or some other factor is making it the case that there, there are probably animals uh, in the wild, and, and a lot of them, a really large number of them, um, that could be kind of a lot better off than they are. Could be, could be suffering, could be better off, maybe just could have better lives, if not for you know, certain things about the ecosystem they're in that may be human-caused, maybe not. Um, and so I see potential there. But we've got the issue I mentioned, and we've got just the, it hasn't been obvious, you know, what are some grants you could make? that might improve the welfare of animals in the wild, that might kind of, you know, accomplish this goal of making other beings better off and not having kind of a bunch of problems come along with them. And it just hasn't been that clear to us, um, but we are kind of continuing to talk about it and look into it in the background. It's something we may do in the future. Okay, cool. Yeah, makes sense. And then uh, final question then is just, you know, 2017 year of review, um, you said, well, we've actually already been able to see some successes in... um, uh, in particular, criminal justice reform and animal welfare. So, I'd be interested if you just talk a bit more about that, and then 
what lessons do you feel you've kind of learned, whether they yep. transfer to the things which harder to measure success? Yeah, so um, yeah, we're, we're early. So I, th I think we've only been doing large-scale grant making for like a couple of years. Um, so a lot of our grant making is on these long time frames. So it's a little early to be asking that we see impact. But I, I would say we're seeing you know, early hints of impact. So the, the clearest case is the farm animal welfare where you know, we kind of came in and there were, there were a couple really big victories that had already been achieved, like a McDonald's pledge that all their eggs would be cage-free. Um, and so there was definitely already momentum. Um, we came in and we kind of poured gasoline on it in a sense. I mean, we went to all the groups that had been getting these wins and we went to some of the groups that hadn't. And we said, would you like to do more? Would you like to grow your staff? Would you like to, you know, just go after these groups? And, um, you know, within a year, uh, basically every major grocer and every major fast food company in America uh, had made a, ca uh, a, a cage-free pledge, uh, approximately. And so hopefully if those pledges are adhered to, which is a question and something we work on, um, but hopefully 10 years from now, you know, you won't even be able to get eggs from caged chickens in the U.S., or it will be very impractical to do so. Uh, that'd be nice. I mean, I'm not happy with how the cage-free chickens are treated either, but it's a lot better. It's a big step up, and I think it's also a big morale win for the movement and, um, and, and creates some momentum because from there, what we've been doing now is starting to build the international, you know, uh, uh, corporate campaigns. And some of those already existed and some of them didn't, but, um, you know, we have been funding work all over the world um, to try and, you know, Next time, we would love to be part of those early wins that got the ball rolling and not just coming in late and, and trying to make things go faster. Um, and so that's been pretty exciting. And we've seen wins, you know, on broiler chickens, which is kind of the next step in the U.S. after cage chickens or after uh, layer hens. And then we've seen wins overseas. Um, and so that, sorry, some, okay. Um, we've seen wins overseas. And so that's, you know, that's been exciting. And, and, and just these corporate campaigns have been one of the quicker things we've funded because uh, mm -hmm. I think a lot of times with the corporation, it wouldn't actually cost them that much to treat the chickens better. Someone just has to kind of complain loudly about it, and then it happens. That seems to be how it goes. Um, so then in criminal justice reform, you know, we picked that cause partly because we saw the opportunity to potentially, you know, make a difference and get some wins, unlike a lot of other policy causes. And, you know, one of the, one of the early things we saw was a couple of bipartisan bills in Illinois that we think are really going to have quite a large impact on incarceration there um, and that we believe are our grantees and, you know, with, with our marginal funding were crucial for. We've also just seen uh, kind of a, a little bit of a mini beginning of a wave of prosecutors uh, getting elected, uh, head prosecutors, who have different values from the normal head prosecutors. So instead of being all about tough on crime and whom do we lock up, um, there's someone, you know, for example, Larry Krasner in Philadelphia has put out a memo to his whole office that says, uh, when you propose someone's sentence, you're going to have to estimate the cost of that to the state. It's like $45,000 a year to put someone in prison, and you're going to have to explain why it is worth that money to us um, to put this person in prison. And, you know, you're also going to, if you want to start a plea bargain and you want to start it lower than the minimum sentence, you're going to have to give my permission. I'm the head pro prosecutor. So it's a different attitude. It's um, prosecutors who are saying, you know, my goal is not to lock up as many people as possible. My goal is to balance costs mm -hmm. and benefits and do the right by my community. Um, and I think there's been a bunch of orgs and a bunch of funders involved in that. I don't think any of these are things I would call like open philanthropy productions. They're things mm -hmm. that we think we helped with. We sped along. We got some share, you know, of, of the work being done. Um, so, I mean, we're excited about that. Those are two of the causes that have nearer term ambitions. Um, I can't say I've seen wins on biosecurity yet. I mean, other than the fact that there's been no pandemic that killed everyone, um, you know. <laughs> but I, sign. I don't. I don't give us much credit for that um, or any. Um, so you know, and then and then I think in terms of you know in terms of lessons. I mean, 
I think we've just kind of seen what's been working and what's not in those causes where there's more action and more things happening. Um, so I think one, you know, one of the things that I think we are seeing is, is our basic setup of giving program officers high autonomy, I think has been working pretty well in that a lot of these grants, they're not the ones I would have come up with. And in some cases, they weren't even ones I was very excited about beforehand. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, we have systems for kind of trying to give our program officers the ability to sometimes make grants that we don't fully agree with um, and try to, you know, reduce veto points, uh, reduce the need for total consensus and have people, you know, at the organization try and make bets that may not be universally agreed to or even agreed to by me or Carrie and Dustin. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, looking at some of the grants that have been effective, I think that's a good move. So I will continue to uh, to do things that don't seem right to me. And I'm very excited about that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, we better wrap up now. But thanks so much, Holden, for coming, um, coming on stage. Um, you know, and thank you for your work. Yeah, thank you.